Hello and welcome to Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000 pop punk and emo pop retrospective. And finally, after weeks and weeks of like getting the name wrong, I got it right at the first try. Yay. I'm awesome. You are. With me? Two people. Fletcher. I'm Adam. Like, if you're listening so far, you know what we do. Or you really like some 41 and you came on for this one. We have numbered episode, and I feel that people, when they see numbered episode, just, like, go to the first one. And, yeah, I don't think that's the correct way to experience our podcast. I don't think we're a serialized oeuvre. I think the, this could be a starting point, and I could tell you, if you were starting from this episode, that we're a podcast that explores pop-punk and emo-pop from 1999 to 2013, going in order to every emo-pop and pop-punk record that charted between those years on a billboard. And you, you would ask us, but Lane, is Sum 41 emo-pop? No, it is not. Although it is one of the suggested Google search, if Sum 41 is an emo. Hmm. Hmm. I did see that their genre was listed as Canada in a few places. <laughs> <laughs> they are Canadian. They are Canadian, indeed. Anyhow, Sum 41. They're pop punk. They're like one of the first bands you think of when I tell you 2000 pop punk. They had the one song that was very big. They did. That's true. I have heard these guys. I have too, for once. Yes. I don't think I need to ask you if you had any experience. Uh, fat lip were sort of everywhere at the time, especially if you were into TRL. That's pure TRL core right there. I've actually heard three songs off this record prior, which is pretty high for one of these. I'm not sure if I've heard other songs other than fat lip because a lot of the songs sound the same. <laughs> <laughs> I heard pretty much all of the singles from, or at least the um, the US singles from this record. There is an extra single available only in Germany and Japan. And, well, not available. There were, one of the songs on the record was a single only in Germany or Japan. And I heard something from their next record, I want to say. Like, I know the one video they have where they do uh, the Strokes parody, where they're like, you are now the Sams. And it's, like, really bad, just, like, really not funny. And there's that one actor in it. Oh, no. Am I the only one remembering that video? I don't know that one, no. We'll get there. Right now we're talking about their 2001 breakout album, Some Filler, Some Killer. Wait. <laughs> Technically, I think it's all killer, no filler, but I agree with your take. We have been on a streak of talking about the album before a band got big in 2001 and 2000. So for once, this is actually their breakout album. So that's fun. So let's go and talk about how did a bunch of like 19 years old Canadian became the new pop punk sensation. Let's go into some history of Sum 41. Yeah. 
starts in the summer of 1996, where a bunch of Canadian babies from Ajax, Ontario are all in the 10th grade. Do you have any fun fact about Ajax, Ontario, Fletch? Well, some 41 are listed as one of the most popular notable individuals from the town, as well as Kim Phuc, subject of a famous photo from the Vietnam War. Um, I'm pretty sure what... Yup! Yup. Uh, referred to informally as the Napalm Girl, so it's the photo I thought. Wait, I don't know what photo I said. Should I Google this or will I be sad? You will be very sad because it's children running away from where we dropped Napalm on Vietnam. Closet Monster, a punk rock band formed out of the remains of some 41 members, so that's always great when you have to double dip on your famous people, and a ska band named the Johnstones. They have a lovely waterfront park, a synchronized skating team, and the Ajax Scuba Club, as well as two different minor leagues and a growing rugby union that is trying to make a name for itself in Canada. A bunch of people found a band. Guitarist Derek Wibley found the band. Drummer Steve Jocks found the band. Bassist Mark Spikoluk found the band. And vocalist John Marshall found the band. This band is not, as you may imagine, Sam 41, but this band is actually named Casper in the beginning. Incidentally, here's an ad for you about Casper mattresses. We have a sponsor now. No, we don't. <laughs> no? No ad? No ad? But instead, let's get to be massive dorks like the members of Casper who were into every kind of thing Massive Dorks would be in the mid-90s. Old school rap, 80s metal, all sorts of sounds that you can hear in, well, the album we're going to talk about today. One day, however, the bands decided they were going to go to see this thing that came through the US and Canada, The, the Warped, Warped Tour. Tour. <laughs> and that's where they decide no FX is the best thing in the world, and they want to be just like them. Oh no. Eventually at some point they changed the name in Sum 41. I couldn't find an exact like watershed moment, but it mainly happened in the following three years after 96, where a bunch of stuff led them to change their lineup. First of all, Greg Norrie, who was the frontman of Treble Charger and their manager, recommends the band that Weebly should be their vocalist. He thought that Derek Weebly was the most charismatic of the bunch, which they agree in. Derek Weebly becomes the vocalist, which means that their old vocalist, John Marshall, leaves the band. John Marshall is followed by their bassist, Mark Spikoluk. They will go on and found Closet Monster together. Closet Monster no longer exists, Some 41 does, which says a lot. 
The missing bassist, Spicolook, is then replaced by Richard Roy, who stays in the band for less than a year and then suffers a near-fatal car accident, which causes him to also leave the band, finally being replaced by Jack on McCaslin on the bass. Also, the band now doesn't have a guitar player because Derek is a singer now, so they're joined by Dave Baksh. During all of these lineup changes, at some point they start calling themselves Sum 41. I couldn't tell you when. I also could not find a time period for this, and they have a lot of conflicting stories about this era. Probably because they were a bunch of young hoodlums who weren't really keeping track of their history, so... I mean, I don't remember what I was doing at 20. At this time, the band is shopping their demo tape around to labels, but specifically American labels, because they think that they have much better chance of success getting out of just being a Canadian band. These tapes do get an immediate response, especially because they come with a music video of the band messing around, screwing with each other, playing pranks, all set to their tracks. Quotes from the band. Uh, When we sent out the first electronic press kit, and then all of a sudden, a week later, all these American record labels came around every week for things. They were taking us to strip clubs and open bars. There was this one label that took us out to dinner when we had already signed with another label, but they didn't know, so we got a free dinner anyway. Can you explain to me the appeal of a strip club? I cannot. (laughs) If it is a certain type of thing that you are into, and especially back in earlier days, perhaps before your time, that was basically the only way to see any sort of easily accessible performance in that vein. Because, I mean, you could buy Playboy and things, but... Maybe you didn't have a theater that rented or that played porno in your town. Maybe there was no one, if you were pre-VHS, that you could get that from. Well, yeah, this this is going to be a not-safe-for-work discussion, but we're ranked as explicit on iTunes, so screw it. I assume that the point of porn is to, like, masturbate, to, like, stroke your genital area. Which is not a thing that you can do as far as I'm... Otherwise, it would be very messy if people could just masturbate in the middle of a strip club. So my assumption my assumption is that you cannot do that in a strip club. So what's the point of porn in the context of a live performance that is shared with other people around you? Well, that's the purpose of the thing that most people will nowadays refer to as a spank bank, wherein you keep things that you can fantasize about for the act of masturbation. And so this is a way to give yourself things that you do not have, perhaps, more reliable access to, to fill the spank bank. You use your brain powers to remember things. I know that's a foreign concept, Ellie, but people can do it. Back in my day, that was really the only way shy of perhaps purchasing a magazine. Nowadays, there's a a lot more access in much more private ways and more personally tailored, so doesn't come up as much, and in fact, that is a huge reason that many of them have been trying to move towards other things. Also, per your comment about not being able to in public, this is what some seedier clubs would use private rooms for, depending on how much the management pressured people to allow customers to get away with. I know, I just wanted to make note that, like, I'm not dunking on the industry of sex work as a whole because like 
you go, do your thing. I'm just like, thanks. I don't understand this shit, and I enjoy asking questions in a comedic way. The aftermath of strip clubs is that eventually Island Records will sign them. That would have been a great alternate title for our podcast. Welcome to The Aftermath of Strip Clubs, a pop-punk retrospective. (laughs) It's not wrong for many of these bands, but I don't know if that title would fit with the emo half of the show. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Welcome to Your Breakup in Slow Motion. I think Chris Carabas crying about his breakup in the middle of a strip club would be a very funny image. I mean, I think that's at least two lit videos. But yeah, the general impression I get from all of this stuff is that Greg Norrie had a lot of hand in them being signed. He was older, you know, he was like 30 years old and already in a fairly successful band at this point. And rumor goes, which is not confirmed by anyone in the band, but of course they wouldn't because they had a fallout with Norrie, I think, in 04. But the rumor is that Greg Norrie had actually a lot of, like, um, input in their uh, songwriting and stuff. So it does seem like Greg Norrie probably saw something in this kid and went like, I'm gonna build myself a pop-punk band from the ground up here. And yeah, and it also fits with the fact that, you know, choices like not going at all to Canadian labels seems something that, you know, an 18-year-old would not necessarily come up with. Choices like, you know, actually know who to send like knowing how to make your tape heard to the right people all of this stuff sounds like you know something that unless these people were complete savant seems like something that could be probably more attributed to greg nori which doesn't mean that the band doesn't have any you know anything good that they did it's just like it definitely sounds like they had someone wiser and older and more connected helping them out to get out there with their uh, with their music and actually managed to get a contract and it does pay out because there are not many bands that get you know signed to a major island record is a major it, i don't i think at this point it was already like death jam island yeah and yeah there's not many bands that like at 18 going into 19 get signed by a major so most the impression that i get is that greg noiri had a Big hand in that. Also, anyone who suspects, well, maybe these kids are prodigies, just needs to listen to them talk to realize that's not the case. I've read a bunch of interviews of them at the time. I haven't heard any of them, but I could imagine them. At this period, I want you to imagine the young Beastie Boys from the You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party era and then just presume that they transplanted genres. That's what Sum 41 sounds like. Yeah, that sounds accurate. I also don't think any of them are currently Buddhists and or dead, so the Beastie Boys comparison ends there. They they are signed by Island Records. They release an EP under Island, uh, Half an Hour of Power, I think is the name of the EP, which is funny because both, of the, both their EP and their LP are 30 minutes, so... What makes one an EP and the other an LP? We'll never know. The price. Yeah. Half an Hour of Power is sold at about $5 at their show while they try and grow up a small audience. And yeah, this is pretty much everything that they do until 2000 when they start recording the record that we're talking about today, All Killer No Filler. (laughs) 
this album is benefited because in 2000, Blink-182 becomes a multinational success. And suddenly, record labels are going, well, we've got one of those. And as a result, the label dumps a bunch of money on these freshmen and tells them to make their first record. Jerry Finn is assigned as producer, and the band is set to record in Ontario. This won't happen, though. Well, this would partially happen, but they will not finish the record of Ontario because there is a problem in that plan by the label is that they just gave a bunch of money to a bunch of dumb 19-year-old kids. I love this. So they just spend most of their money for, like, going out, partying, going to strip clubs, going to bar. They basically they start recording the record and they have a couple of tracks, but they don't have a record. And Jerry Finn tells them, don't worry, we're, we're recording a record, it's a process, you will write things once you get into the, into the mood, once you get into the flow of the thing. They will never get into the flow of the thing. By their admission, they record that about 30 minutes a day and spend the rest of the day partying. And eventually, their label realizes that uh, if they keep on this way, they're not going to be able to actually have a record at the end. So they forcefully move them to LA where they are not of the legal age to drink. So they are actually forced to work on the record once the recording is moved to LA. I love that so much. Surprise. That's the most brilliant move and the best way that do it in America bites them in the ass. <laughs> oh, you want to be an American band? Okay. It takes them about seven months total at this point to write and record the whole record. But eventually they deliver 30 minutes of material. Good job, Sam 41. You did it. This explains a lot about the album, honestly. <laughs> Hilariously, this is a trend with them. Their next album is a lean 3106. 39 minutes if you have the UK edition. Look, we've heard records that are too long, and I appreciate a short record. It also feels that this one isn't a short record because they cut off all of the fat. It feels like this is a short record because they couldn't come up with more songs. Yeah, this is the book report you wrote the day before it was due. This record is too long for what it is. <laughs> it's a very good EP with some extra tracks. Yes. Yep. But yeah, three singles eventually get released for the record. Fat Leap, Into Deep, and Motivation. Plus, Handle This as a Germany and Japan only single. Interestingly enough, I'm going to interrupt you there. Fat Lip is also re-released in a double video because of the shortness of it that has the one-minute Pain for Pleasure tacked onto it as a joint. Huh. I did not watch that video. I only watched the regular Fat Lip video. It's, it's just the exact same thing, but when the Pain for Pleasure video starts with a blur into that, that was the transition used from one to the other. Fat Lip is also their breakout single, basically. The first and biggest single ever had, pretty much. I don't think they top it with any of the future release. It goes into the Billboard Hot 100, which very few records on our list do, eventually topping at 66, staying there for a couple of weeks. Couple of interesting things about this. Unlike a lot of bands that we talk about this show, who tend to have really high airplay numbers and at least lower actual chart Hot 100 number, Fat Lip's success is not driven by radio. Actually, their 
their success on the airplay chart is lesser than the one on the Hot 100 chart, which basically tells us that a lot of people were actually buying Fat Lip as a single, which is interesting. I don't have any big deduction that I can do for it, but it's interesting. One of the few bands which single success were more driven by sale than by airplay. The second thing that I want to note is that while 66 is not necessarily an impressive chart position, this was definitely a time in which the Hot 100 chart was very locked for rock acts. Half of the top 100, especially if you look at the specific week in which Fat Lip topped at 66, was pretty much populated by hip-hop and R&B act. This was pretty much that four to five years in which hip-hop made the successful transition from a niche genre to like full-on mainstream palatable, top of the charts, big, big money music. And the charts reflect that. There's a lot of rap, a lot of hip-hop, a lot of R&B in there. So there is not that much space anymore for rock acts. Also, the rock acts that are there are what we already discussed as the sappy, sad, annoying, slow songs that the radio loves. Just some example of what's in the top 10 for rock acts. We have Train with Drops of Jupiter. <laughs> we have It's Been a While by Stained. We have Hanging by a Moment by Lifehouse. I cannot remember the last time I heard the name Lifehouse and I hate this. <laughs> if we go a bit down in the chart, but still over Psalm 41, we have Here's to Tonight by Eve 6, which we talked about. We have Three Doors Down with Be Like That. Man, I haven't heard of uh, Three Doors Down in forever. <sighs> Fortunately. Huh. But yeah, basically if you scroll top to bottom, the first like legitimate rock song that you can find there is American Hi-Fi Flavor of the Week at 49. And that says a lot. That says a whole lot if that's the most legitimate rock song on there. Oh, Flavor of the Week. <laughs> God. Nintendo! Nintendo! <laughs> he don't know anything about her ex. But yeah, so basically, uh, topping at 66 on the Hot 100 chart, it doesn't sound impressive when we, you say it, but it's a, it's a big deal. Because there wasn't many actual rock music on the chart. And this is definitely like, Fat Lip is like energetic, it's summery, but it's still like fundamentally a rock song. Mm -hmm. Also... Uh, another reason why this song is very well remembered and very successful is this. We were in the middle of the TRL era, and this song was all over TRL. The band and the song were like proper TRL core stuff. So, yeah, there's also like a lot of, a lot of MTV airplay and so on. Also, they were a band pitch perfect for TRL because imagine... You're a teenager at home, the demographic MTV is aiming at, and you see some 41 dudes who are not even of drinking age yet being interviewed by Carson Daly fucking around in the studio. This was every little idiot in a band's wet dream live on stage in front of everyone. What's TRL? We haven't actually done this on the show yet, have we? We haven't. I, I should have told you before to we could have compiled a little history of TRL, but we didn't. So. Yeah, I, I don't have a full history, but uh, 
So it was a music video top 10 that ran daily on every weekday. And these changed quite often because the phone poll was there. You were able to vote on a website at a certain point. And so there was a lot of jockeying. I know some people who were incredibly invested in this to the point of trying to take down whatever was number one or get your guy up there. Or maybe different band fandoms were like, we all have to team up to take down this boy band or whatever. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) It was weirdly tribal in a way that you don't quite get out of the music industry anymore. This was the dying gasp of their golden days before Napster is going to shoot them in the kneecaps and leave them bleeding out. So what does TRL stand for? Total Request Live. Okay. It just, it did eventually just become TRL in pretty much every kind of branding because the name makes little to no sense after the format starts shifting. And I want to say they brought this show back in some form in the past few years. Uh, I really want to ask, was because the, um, so we had a different version of TRL in Italy, because, you know, we had like an Italian-produced version. Yeah, most, most nations had an export of this. Yeah, the setup that I remember the most, and I don't know if that was accurate to America, was that like it was like an actual live thing. Like you had like a stage and there was like presenter on the stage and then you have like this crowd of like screaming teens and preteens just like surrounding the stage so was that the the format in america too yes but there was the added layer of i believe they had a Times square or near Times square studio so outside the window you would see crowds of young teens with signs trying to get into the background shots Neat. Yeah, and this pretty much drove a lot of this like pop punk stuff to a big success. Like the one of the reasons why Blink was huge and one of the reasons why Sum 41 became pretty big is that TRL really liked them and they were on TRL a bunch. And again, as you mentioned, a lot of the thing was like while other artists, even like if you see like, you know, new metal bands that were starting to be big, they were not relatable, quote-unquote, to the audience of TRL. They they liked them, but they were more like this, like, bigger-than-life figures, you know? All of the piercing, the fucking, like, all of weird clothes that a lot of bands like Korn were wearing at the time. While, on the other hand, like, bands like Blink, bands like Sam 41, it's just like, here's a bunch of dumb kids like you. Enjoy. So it, it, that was their appeal. Overall, as mentioned, the record was actually a success. It stayed on the top 200 record for a while. It debuted at 23 and stayed there for about 50 weeks. 49 to be accurate, but if you say 50 weeks, it sounds better. Yes. Eventually, even overtaking the new metal power couple, Lim Bizkit and Linkin Park. So they're pretty well commercially, the record itself. Ah, Limpkin Bark. I want to die now. That's the worst thing I've said today. (laughs) I will remember this. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, this is pretty much how we got to this record. Let's talk about the record itself. Children of the Beast Embrace To scorn and hate the human race, consume the light that hugs the earth, and aid the womb in giving birth, 
to a group that will appear and guide you through this final year. The Dark Armies then will come when the song is 41. This starts out with a very strange introduction. It got my hopes up. <laughs> it gives a you're in for some prog, you're in for some metal vibe. It's very the Dark Lord Satan is going to arrive. Yeah, I mean, more than prog, like the feel of this intro is like they're making an Iron Maiden parody. Which will make sense, given the track at the end of this. This is very much 80s heavy metal intro. And I was expecting that the album that followed this opening track would have some of those 80s metal influences. And, you know, sound in any way like something that opens with this opening track. And then it didn't. Yeah, I feel like in in, in the record they try to do heavy metal influence at some point, but when they do it, it just comes out as hair metal. <laughs> like, knowing their background, I can tell that when they try and do a weird solo, it's because they want to be Iron Maiden, but they end up sounding like Bon Jovi when they do, which is really funny. Yeah, like... Yeah, some 41 has immense butt rock vibes. <laughs> and... I think a huge part of that comes down to the fact that their playing is incredibly punk. They do not have the skills to be a metal group. And sometimes this works, but that's not what they're leaning into. And I will be curious to see what that looks like on their next album. Do they refine the sound? Do they just continue flailing like this? I am really interested to see what happens with Sam 41 going on. Because this is like, this and the next record are the records that everyone remember, are the record that everyone sort of knows, it's the sound that you know. And I heard that the third record onwards, they try and get more quote-unquote serious. Oh god. And I'm really curious to know what a serious Sum 41 record sounds like. That sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> I did a little bit because these were so close together. They record the next album and get it out under 18 months after this one, most of it in 2002. And there were a couple interviews where they were saying, a, a lot of stuff happened in the past year that's opened our eyes to new things. The whole last year was really crazy around the world. I think we've all become more aware. Now we've seen a little bit more of life and our eyes have been opened up. <laughs> that's the weirdest euphemism for 9-11 that I've ever heard. A lot of stuff happened around the oh, world. Oh, even better... Because of 9-11 and all of the things that happened in 2001, they decided that they should write a track about HIV on their second album. I mean, sure. Why not? Yeah, I really am looking forward to hearing what that second one sounds like. I want to stop this podcast now. I want to get down. Please stop the podcast. And I haven't even told you that next week we're covering Phoenix TX. My podcast now, Ellie. <laughs> However, with Ellie stepping down, that means there's no longer nothing on her back. Was it in the lost and found again? Are the issues? It might not be so bad. We're all addicted to our tragedy. I guess it's why. Matter of the
nothing on my back. It's fine. It's fun. It sounds like a Blink song. Yeah, sort of like Blink meets Green Day. Ooh, you're right. I think they are going a lot more for Green Day, especially with a couple of tracks. Yeah, I mean, the latter half, there are some tracks that are straight up Blink, but yeah, this feels a bit more Green Day. It's a bit rougher than Green Day. Jerry Flynn still has that slick pop production, but not to the like almost boy bandish level that Enema was produced. Like there is no, there is really no electronics. There is really no like shiny 2000 production. It's just like very crisp pop punk. The guitars are mixed a bit high, which is not bad. I don't think there's any like, the guitars are fine. And I think it's interesting that they're mixed a bit high in the mix. But yeah, this song is okay. There's, the verse starts pretty well. The chorus is fine. There is this very 80s rock riff. Again, trying for Iron Maiden, getting to Bon Jovi. It's not a bad song. It does feel a bit unrealized. Like, this feels like we were describing. This feels like the song that you hand over, like, the, 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 the hour before the deadline closes. So I'm the only one who listened to this on YouTube, aren't I? Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is a very weird album to do that with because they have a lot of live performance videos up, but some of them are just the studio version layered over that. Except in this track, I actually had to rewind and check. There's just one point in the middle where they just cut to live crowd noise in the middle of the song. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the next track, which I'll just cover now because I'm on this topic, they don't have a copy of the song up. They have it as part of a medley of tracks from when they were at a later Warped Tour that it is shoved into the middle of while they're showing off one of the bands pranking each other by making a member of Sum 41 dress as a sexy nurse from the Blink-182 cover. <laughs> It's really weird, and I was thinking, oh yeah, I'll just do the same thing I always do. I'll put on the band's official playlist, I'll give them a couple of clicks, I'll listen to the music. It's easy to scroll through. No, I didn't get to do that today, and I actually had to go around to Daily Motion to find clean versions of some of these to compare the studio sound. Damn. It's just a very bizarre choice, and I don't see what anyone gained from it. <laughs> yeah, the song is perfectly alright. It does start... One of my uh, problems with this album where I'm like, hmm, like the, I understand that like repetition in songs can be fun sometimes, but sometimes they overdo it. Yeah, this record is very much we will repeat the chorus over and over and over. And when it's like in too deep, which has a great chorus, it's just like, fuck, yeah, chorus all the way down. Just do the chorus forever. When it's this, it's just like, it's yeah. okay. Uh, Fat Lip and In Too Deep are the singles, probably because they're the ones where they wrote the most song. Tracks like this one are three verses, and the chorus is carrying everything as it comes up five times. <laughs> yeah. 
There's also like an interesting bridge where they basically do this very light, poppy breakdown where like every instrument gets their moment of mediocrity. And this is not a knock on they are musician. Like I think, you know, they're fine for what they do. It's just like, it's not necessarily the genre where I want to hear a drum solo. But here you get like the, the, the drums gets their moment, the bass gets their moment, the guitar gets their moment, and then the singer gets their moment. And nothing of value is gained by this bit, except the final chorus, which is pretty good. They increase the energy at the end and have a good finale. But yeah. And that takes us into Never Wake Up. It's a 50-second jam. 50-second of random punk noise. Mm. I like it. I did not like it at all. <laughs> if, I, if, if I, like, wanted to listen to a song about somebody that plans on never waking up, I'm pretty sure I could listen to an emo album and, like, at least get a better sound out of it. That is fair. They try and do an emo song later on this record. Yeah. The weird part about this is, despite the chorus... The whole thing is just like, I don't want to get out of bed. That's what this track is. Yeah. Yep. I, I think it's uh, just sound-wise, I like this. This is just like 50 seconds. We're just like making as much noise as we can. And it's like, you go, you go, go get it. Go get that money. Yeah. Ignore the lyrics. And this is a really good uh, slamming on the guitars track. Yeah, I'll give it that. I, I just think that like the slamming on the guitar is kind of at odds with the message of being too depressed to get out of bed. Definitely some ludonarrative dissonance here. Yeah. Also, there's a track that's way more about depression and things later on on the album, which makes this one even weirder. And then we go to the best song ever, Fat Lip. There's a video with that where they do a rap. Yes. Like the rap singers that you see on TV. They what? Oh, you didn't you didn't see them uh, scatting to a bodega clerk? Yeah, search Fat Lip on YouTube and look at the first, like, 10 seconds of the song. I never watched the video. Okay. Oh. <laughs> the funniest thing about the rap at the beginning of the video is that the assumption is that it's the best take that they could have. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And that's just very funny to me. Oh, dear. <laughs> because they they definitely had multiple takes of this, and this was the best one that they could oh, have. Oh, my. And that's just, like, hilarious to me. And they look so satisfied at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Dear Lord. <laughs> I think this is all I can handle. Are you following me and leaving this podcast, Adam? 
I'm not because of my I'm stealing it from you, but it's a close thing. <laughs> Soon this podcast will be just Fletch listening to pop punk music, wondering why he's still doing this. Well, someone has to keep putting up the episodes. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to throw out a hot take. Bottom 3 on the album for me. I love this song. It's stupid as fuck and it's like really fun. I love this song. I think a lot of that is colored by the fact that you could not escape this track. But that is fair. I could not accept the Stark Eater, but it's great. 20 years later, it just does nothing for me. At least with a lot of other things on the album, I have something to say about them. This is just uh, bouncing around, very energetic, and I hate the chorus. I disagree. Like, they're definitely at the most rappy here, which is interesting, because, like, this was sort of like the dawn of new metal and rap rock with Bling Biscuit and so on. So I wonder if like that was also their label being like, oh, you like you like that rap thing, right? You like the rap singers. Do do some of that in your record, maybe. That's popular. And they were like, heck yeah, we'll be like like the DMX or the Beastie Boys, and then they do this, and you're like, it's so funny. They try and rhyme El Nino with El Camino because they don't know how Spanish works. I love this. The funny thing about this song is that the first time I ever heard it was in a uh, um, a mashup mix thing that someone made on Tumblr in like 2016 that was um, like a, a mashup of like all of the singles of all of the pop punk and emo punk bands that um, people my age would have listened to when they were a bit younger. Oh, so it's our intro. Was it the Lounge Kittens? It was not that intro. Um, I don't know, Fletch. It 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 is no longer 2016, and I put it into my iTunes and just labeled it mix. Um, so God. you know, <laughs> lack of foresight. Didn't know I was going to be doing this podcast, but um, the song that comes up right after this, it goes from the chorus of this straight into the chorus of Stacy's mom. So. The two songs are inextricable in my head. Yeah, this is a good pop song. This is Mom is a perfect pop song. So, you know, I don't think that's... I don't think they're in the same league. I will will die on this hill. I will (laughs) die on this hill. I will die on this hill. You are welcome to do so, Ellie. (laughs) But if you do, realize that Adam is going to take your podcast. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I was going to do that anyway. Might as well die on the hill of Stacey's mom being a perfect pop song, because it is. Also, I feel I must point out that this is one of the ones where the band was tagged as Canada for a genre, as well as, and I enjoy this very much, rap rock, gaming, skate punk, and rap. I could see this being classified as rap rock. I don't think they... <laughs> I would not give them the rap label on its own. <laughs> I think I think they don't... I love this song. I don't think they deserve to be labeled as rap, just as a single label. What does gaming the genre sound like? I don't know. I'm going to click it and find out. I mean, this probably wasn't like a Tony Hawk game or something, so I'm imagining that's why gaming. Oh, probably, but still. (laughs) Okay, well, 
this was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) My plot worked. Uh, I got to discover that there is a cyberpunk unofficial OST and Grimes is on it, so I want to (laughs) die. Well, she does appreciate power. Uh, Yeah, also, this was a mistake. Another great title for a podcast. (laughs) Welcome to This Was a Mistake, a 2000 pop punk and emo pop perspective. I am actually curious how many podcasts are named some form of that. (laughs) Ooh, good. Seven real world podcasting mistakes to avoid. What am I going to learn today? (laughs) Come on. Teach us, Fletch. Teach us the mistake that we should avoid. Sound levels. Don't fuck up the host's levels. Okay. Edit and prune. It's a sad truth. Of the 15-plus podcasts I reviewed for this article, only one or two bothered to edit their show. (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh, oh, we we failed. Number three, no self-deprecating comments, please. Oh, God. (laughs) That's like 80% of our podcast. Well, that sounds like a them problem. Oh, we're also in trouble with number four. Avoid copyright infringement. Nintendo! Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's Uh, a good one. (laughs) We're good on number five. Avoid using YouTube as a hosting service. Oh, yeah. Number six. Avoid obscure and over-sophisticated names. Hey, good news. We're not sophisticated. (laughs) We're... I, it's a long name. I don't know if it's obscure or over-sophisticated. And number seven, avoid amateurish graphics on the homepage. Oh, we're fine. I want to be real here. When was this written? I don't see a date on this. Because I want to remember when the last time anyone who isn't me went to a podcast's webpage. <laughs> I mean, we tell we tell people to go there at the end of every show. Oh, everyone tells people to go there, but I don't know if anyone but me does. They just go to iTunes, Stitcher, whatever the service is. I do it because I use an ancient MP3 player that I have to plug in with a micro USB and load to play my podcasts. Oh, are we MP3 players, buddy? Are we the two people left in the universe who use, like, micro-USB MP3 player, Fletch? Yeah, I don't I don't put it on my phone. I don't want to damage my phone or get that wet or something. That stays in my pocket where it will get less fucked up than the thing that hangs around my neck or on my collar and, you know, might occasionally take a hit from a forklift. Looks at how fucked up my phone is. <laughs> Also, my MP3 player has way more memory than my phone. Like, I have, like, about 80 gigabyte of music on my MP3 player and podcasts. It's like, there is a reason why we make a thing specifically to listen music. Because, like, it's a thing specifically made to listen music. You're making me realize that I need to bite the bullet and find a new, buy a new charger for my MP3 player so I can listen to music and podcasts again. Anyway, one final comment on Fat Lip. It is hilarious that the most rap rock hip hop track on the album is the one where they're talking about how heavy metal and mullets is how we were raised. Maiden and Priest were the gods that we praised. This is one of the least hard tracks on the album. It is. Uh, also, another funny thing about this track is 
The doctor said my mom should have had an abortion, 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 abortion. <laughs> That's an absolutely iconic line. I love it. Just the echo, the echo on the abortion. The echo on the abortion. Oh, yeah, that threw me. <laughs> I've heard it quoted and stolen in many other mixes. The cheesy pop bridge when they suddenly are like, don't count of me to let you know when. And it's just like, what are you talking about now? Who shouldn't count of you to let you know what? And yeah, this is horrible. And I love it. I love every second of it. You don't know us at all. We laugh when people fall. But what else can you do in a country so small? I guess that is why it's tagged Canada. Yeah, you know, noted tiny country, Canada. <laughs> yeah, Canada is like, you know, the size of a, like a, a pinworm. The, the, the thing is that like all of this stuff are so dumb, but they're also like innocent and fun. Like this is not fucking Phoenix TX trying to do a political song. This is like, what would a bunch of 19 year old kids write? And they would write this shit, and it's actually fun. And uh, it's an earworm. Uh, yeah, I can appreciate that about it. It's an earworm. The chorus is, like, great. Top song of the record, honestly. I love this. Well, let's go into what is my hard bottom of the record, then. Rhythms. Night in the way, but I don't say It's what you're used to Got the words but can't convey I know you'll turn it all around it's a rhythm that you go through Get it back and you're not a fight to say Not attack but you're better off anyway So now it's never up to me What if I were to say Simple words I can't relate Right on place upon your view It's a rhythm that you go through I know what I want You just take me through the motions I know what I want Oh, this is like one of my top songs. Okay, fight! <laughs> Very repetitive. Everything. Lyrics, the, ironically, rhythms, the beat. This is the one that grated on me the most out of the whole album in terms of the you wrote half a song and you sang it twice. I mean, that's fair, but since my primary method of listening to music is to listen to the same song on loop, if they sing the same song twice, then, like... With one less button press? <laughs> pretty much. Alright. Anyhow, I'm a rhythm centrist. I think it's fine. I like that this uh, has a slower tempo, but keeps, like, heavier instrumentation and a lot of energy. The chorus is very sing-alongy. I could see singing along with it. The lyrics are kind of nonsense. Yeah, most of the lyrics are kind of nonsense. But they vibe. Yeah, yeah it's fine. I hate the sappy bridge. They keep trying to have, like, sappy melodic bridges, and it's just like, that's not you, Sam. You're dumb. Don't do that. But yeah, my comment on this song and another song is that if they had horns, I could probably skunk to this. I could I could definitely see this as a good ska song because then yeah the horns would give it more punctuation. I like that they keep a good energy while keeping the tempo a bit not low but like a bit lower than usual because that's very like dancing energy right that's like very this is probably fine life this probably has a good energy life. I 
definitely get the feeling that this is a group I would enjoy way more on a stage. Hmm. Honestly, that's true for a lot of the groups we listen to on this uh, podcast. Yeah. Mm, maybe I think that I think that a raw sound and some energy would really help with this compared to a lot of them. Yeah. Motivation. What's the difference of never knowing at all? Whenever every step by, tank is always too small. Maybe it's just something I can't admit. But lately, I feel like I don't give a shit. Motivation, such an aggravation. Accusations, don't know how to take them. Inspiration's getting hard to fake it. Concentration, never run a break it. Situation, never what you want it to be. Or as I call it, Shitty Longview by Green Day. Oh, I call this um, either they're pretty fly for a white guy or like go and get a job by the offspring. This is like their most gimmicky, weird song on this record, aside from the ending, but that's like a clear reference. It's a weird song. I don't like it. There's a bit that just sounds like The Killers, but I just want to start singing like... Choking on your alibis. <laughs> they, they have the same melody at some point. It's like, oh, this reminds me of a good song. Crap. Yeah, this reminds me of many better tracks. Yeah. And worse tracks. Like, this reminds me of, like, you know, the offspring go get a job or whatever, which is, I would say, a worse track than this. This reminds me of a lot of things, but it's not of, of those things. And I would not be able to describe what they think in a void. Like, they have that weird marching band rhythm on the chorus, which generally you have, like, in the verse to build up to, like, a big chorus. But here, that's just their chorus, and it doesn't really work. Hmm. This song is weird, and I don't like it, and it's bad, and I want it shoved out of my view. Yeah, it's kind of a mood. How about we go on to an actual success, then? Ooh, yeah. Into the... This one is... This rules. This is great. Very strong song. This is like pure, summery, pop-punk garbage, and I love it. As a video where they, like, have a swimming competition with a bunch of jocks, and and they win. (laughs) There's some uncomfortable humor about the jocks being gay, which wouldn't work in the 2020... I thought of it as a very, uh, very 80s slobs versus snobs. So yeah, a little bit of casual homophobia fits with that. Yeah, but it's still, it's fun. It's like, it's all chorus. It's like chorus all the way down, and the chorus is great. I didn't like this one. What did you say, Adam? I said I didn't like this one. Oh no. Specifically because it's chorus all the way down. That's fair. There, there is a reason for not to like it, but uh, 
I'm into this. It has the dumbest, like, Bon jovi solo ever, and I just laugh at that. Once again, <laughs> yeah, try to be Iron Maiden, they end up being Bon Jovi, and that's like, that's beautiful. I love that. That is pretty beautiful. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's great. It it's is fun. repetitive, but I think the pace fits it better. Yeah. I don't have it. Like, this is fun. This is a fun song. You will hear an excerpt from this, and you'll be like, you'll either be like, oh, this is fun, or you'll be like, oh, no, like Adam was. Because I don't think there's a middle ground of liking this. I think this was on um, Lego Rock Band for the three, for the Nintendo DS. Lego Rock Band? Well, yeah. How else do you cram more licenses into an already licensed music game? I... I think I need to go lay down. <laughs> Even better. Do you want the ultimate burn? Sure. This was featured on Now That's What I Call Dad Rock in oh. 2018. <laughs> no! <laughs> yep. That is oh. not... Oh, I need to go lay down. I have to see what else is on this album. I need to find out. I but... really want this page to load. <laughs> How old are these dads? Oh my god, this is a wild one. Okay. So, A, this is clearly a multi-disc thing, but... Uh, yeah, this is 60 tracks, so this is a, this is a box set. All right. Still, like, that rock is from the, like, 70s, 80s. Okay, I'm just gonna go through the first 10 out of 60 on here. Remember, this was 2018, and this is going to be good to hear your reactions. We Will Rock You by Queen. Start Me Up by the Rolling Stones. With or Without You, You Too. Living on a Prayer, Bon Jovi. Radioactive by Imagine Dragons. Uh, Mr. Brightside by The Killers. uh, Dakota by Stereophonics. Take Me to Church by Hozier. What? That's not even rock! Rockstar by Nickelback, and Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner. Okay, Rockstar by Nickelback, it's a list of dad rock in spirit. I can give you that. Living on a Player, that's dad rock. I also, that's also a great song. I'm, I'm gonna, uh, that's another song I will die on that hill, that Living on a Prayer is actually a, a classic and it's great. Living on a Prayer is good. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Hosier? What? 2018 Dad Rock. I think some of my soul just left my body and I'm going to need to go lay down and sleep for a week to recuperate. So have fun doing the podcast. (laughs) Hey, hey, I could make both of you really angry with two that are in a row on this. Do it. All the Small Things by Blink-182 and Stacy's Mom by Fountains of Wayne. (laughs) Fuck off. <laughs> I'm dying, Squirtle. Oh, kids by MGMT. No. That, the, what, how? What? Get your hands off that. That's not Dad Rock. How? Th- what? What? Why? Well, I'm dead. Well, thank you, Fletch. We will have to die now. <laughs> <sighs> mm. <laughs> Let's go into summer. Yeah.
This song is too sad to be a song about summer. It's sad? Not sad, but just like melancholy. Like, it's not. A, what I imagine a summery song being is like very happy and just. In Too Deep. In Too Deep is a song that could be called Summer. This is like. The singer suddenly sounds like Mark Hoppus on this song, for some reason. And this is sort of like a fastest show song, but with melancholy tinges, minor chords. And yeah, Blink-182 already did this, guys, and it did it better than you. Like, Alien Exist is a better song than this song. This track is either in or inspired by Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3. So, why not? <laughs> Interestingly enough, there are apparently multiple revisions of this song because this is one of the first things they wrote, and it appeared both on their EP and on their original demo where... And I love this description. It was on the Rock Out With Your Cock Out demo as a very shittily recorded version where it does not lead into any other tracks. It was on the Excuse Me What? Yeah. <laughs> reminder, 17-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah. Other reminder, they got a record deal off that. I mean, I guess that explains why they were in strip clubs all the time. But you cannot have your cock out in a strip club. <laughs> you cannot rock out with your cock out if you're there. They needed inspiration. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is mediocre. This is like the first, this is the first track that I was like, yeah, this is definitely filler. This is definitely like the, the some filler in the title. These are shallower lyrics than a Phoenix TX album. My problem with Phoenix TX wasn't the shallow song, it was the offensive songs. It was the really fucking weird turns that some of those songs took. On my first listen of this album, this is the part where I wrote, this doesn't even have the edge of a lit album? And then I had to cross that out later, writing that before the trio of, ooh, you're not so good on women tracks. Eventually I just give up on the lyrics. I'm just like, oh... Fletch and Adam will tell me how awful these lyrics are. I will just listen to the fun pop punk. Yeah, good news. We're about to get there. Do we want to get there? Do we want to handle this? I don't know if we can handle this. Let's handle this. Okay, so first, I need you all to know that on Genius Lyrics, the picture for this song is Handle This, written in red, and then there's a naked butt. Almost every track on this album has single art, and I'm pretty sure that accounts for some of the sales that you were Oh, mentioning. that's just for um, Fat Lip, though. Yeah, but I'm just saying that nearly every track on this album has single art, which means they pushed it quite a bit. Can everyone tell me about the awful lyrics of this song before I uh, go in my rant, which I have a lot written of why I hate this song. This is where we start getting into all the breakup songs, which they were nice enough to put into a block, even if it makes it an incredibly toxic chunk of the album. All the breakup songs on this record sack. 
and so on. It's very true. I wish they would leave roses by the stairs or the songs out by the dumpster so I don't have to carry it so far. But this is the one that's the classiest of the three because the chorus is talking about how I don't want to miss out on things. I'm just bringing you down. But then it turns into... I don't think you can handle this. You're lost. You can't find it. Eh, yeah, it wasn't what you wanted. It's very wishy-washy instead of outright offensive. But they sing the chorus about five times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to read the notes on my on this song, like in order. My thoughts in order on this song. I'm like, I start and I'm like, yeah, nice riff. Go on. Second comment. No, slow song. Third comment. Fuck. Fourth comment, this is a bad pop emo song. Fifth comment, why are you doing this to me, Sam? Anyhow, they wasted a really decent riff and a fun riff on this sad breakup song. And I want to go a bit deeper on this because it's like, if I say this is bad because it's a sad pop emo-ish breakup song by Sam41, most people who know who Sam 41 is would like nod along and being like, yeah, that sounds awful. But I wanted to go a bit deeper on why this specific sad breakup song doesn't work. And a lot, because it's, that is not a thing that is bad in a void, right? There are a lot of great sad breakup song. Mm -hmm. But why does this doesn't work? Why does Sam doesn't make it work? First, the singer has a actually a very flat voice. Like it's fine for pop punk, which is a, especially the kind of pop punk that they do, which is like summery, fun, where jackasses. And that's like fun. That's fine. You don't have to express a huge range of emotion with your voice. You just have to be like sort of like a snotty pop punk teen. And it works for that, but when you start doing sad song, you need to convey feelings with your voice and this guy doesn't this guy thinks everything the same secondly this sort of straddles the line between an emo song a sad rock song like the calling or something like a sad like radio rock song and with a just a hint of hair metal bad blood because like they have again cheesy solos which i'm sure they wanted to be iron maideny but they just sound like i don't know mr big or something and one of those things is good. I like me an emo song. And all of the rest of the stuff is just not good. And I don't know why you would put that on like a more emo-ish song that you're doing. Like a more punk emo. And that doesn't work. The production doesn't help this song a tiny bit. And this is so weird to me. Because Jerry Finn on the Blink record on Enemy of the State did some great production for, like, the the quieter, sadder songs. It even produced that one song, what, what was the name? Diarrhea Jerry or something, which wasn't a sad song, but it produced that like it was the greatest, most sad song on the record, which brought its own issues with it, but Jerry Finn can produce a sad song. It doesn't in this record. It just leaves, like, it mixes this song the same as every other song. The guitar is very high. It has this crisp, heavy sound to it, while still having some, like, summary, just, like, treble on the voice. 
So this doesn't sound like a breakup song. It doesn't have that production edge. The riff is fun. I love the riff, but it's so out of place in this song. And this is the point. The difference between a good, sad, emo, like, rock ballad and a bad one are three. Good lyrics, instrumentation that is crafted specifically to convey emotions, and interesting, like, melodic turns, interesting melody. Those are, like, the three, I think, the three key that make the song work. Lyrics, emotion, especially expressed through the instrumentation. Doesn't necessarily have to be weird instrumentation, like, you don't have to go all Jimmy at words and have, like, I don't know, a giant gong that you're playing in the middle of the song. But you have to get smart about your instrumentation. And having, like, a melody that's not just stretching your normal, like, voice a lot. You generally need two of those things. You don't, don't have to have all three. You generally need two of these things are enough to make a good, sad breakup song. Sad, like, emo punk breakup song. This song has nothing. There's nothing going in lyrically. In fact, the lyrics are sort of quite crap. There is nothing going on instrumentally. Even the production lets it down. There's nothing happening there. And and yeah, and the melody is just the singer singing very long notes. Yeah, I don't like this. This is a study in why the song sucks. This is my bottom song for the record. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. I guess thanks for coming to my podcast also. Here, let's dig deeper. Crazy Amanda Bunkface is next. I initially, like, misread this title, and I'm really glad that it doesn't say what I read at the beginning. Gonna leave to the imagination about how I misread this title. Yeah, I can imagine. I don't hate this, though. This is like dollar store in too deep. It's like, what if in too deep, but not as good? It's fine. After the last track, it's got speed, which picks it up a bit, but this is the one where we start getting into the real, ugh, women and feelings and thinking before they act. What is this? I don't want to hear you bitch no more. What's so hard about goodbyes? I'm sorry, I'm just not as keen on planning out our perfect lives when I'm only 19. Man, I'm young. I don't need any of your bullshit. You can't tie me down. The whole thing is just this one side. Oh, God, why are you trying to be all responsible like we're adults? And that's the tone of the track. I mean, musically, it is fine. There is a weird metal breakdown in the middle that just kills the momentum of the song. And I don't know why it's there. It sort of sucks. But, yeah. I don't hate this. The lyrics are probably crap, yeah. Yeah, again, we're we're not into full-on open He-Man woman haters club stuff, but we're definitely crawling there. And that's all she's got. This place reminds me of a time
This is the ugly one. So this is, I'm gonna just do my quick comment about the, how musical this is, because this is the most generic punk song on the record, and I literally have nothing else to say about it. This is just like, I don't hate it, I don't love it, this doesn't stand out at all. Now please destroy the lyrics. The very first line is, this place reminds me of a time that's way too old, which is why I simply have the words 1993 question mark circled. <laughs> and the chorus is ugly. Believer, it's all she's got to pass the time. Believer, it's over now, she's past her prime. Believer, it's all she's got to keep things right. Believe her, it's all she's got. It's all she's got. Wow. Yeah, that's not great. There's a there's a very specific thing you could read into this. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it with believe her being part of the chorus, but then there's then there's parts of but for now, I don't see what's wrong with pretending it's true. I thought you knew. It's like ooh, ooh, it's really hard. I like to read this as a believer in the sense that maybe she wants to keep up a relationship that in the view of the singer is already dead and i would not like to think about the other explanation because that's very ugly and i don't you know these days keep getting worse i'm wasting all my time i thought i'd come in first instead i fell behind yeah okay the real questionable line and the one that makes it incredibly ooh is it seems most every time my motives are all wrong. Hmm. Uh, well, I don't. I don't think it's about. Yeah, this is one of the only times I will say maybe teenage idiots, but it doesn't make it good. Hmm. So yeah, thankfully. We're out of this. We're out of this and into uh, the, the closing chunk of the album. Heart Attack. Heart Attack. Which is much more pleasant. Again, this really is the track that should have been named Never Wake Up, because it's straight up. It's not, oh no, I feel like I'm dying in a dream. It's, oh god, I don't want to live, and why why get out of bed? And Yeah, that's a mood. Why get up? My morning doesn't even start till two. It's not important if the days are shortened. <laughs> I can't make time when nothing's new, because waking up is hard to do. Yeah. This is uh, a very downer song, but you know what? It conveyed pretty well, especially for kids of their age, so uh, good on them. I'll give them that. This was a success. It's not the worst song on the record, and that's good enough for me. Yes. And now let's go into the best song on the record.
this is the best song, but yeah, Pin for Pleasure. They they make an Iron Maiden parody for like 1 minute 30 at the end of the record. I dig this, and I think that just says I very much am in the style of an old school metal album than most pop punk. They finally delivered on what they set up in the, the first track. I don't like Iron Maiden a lot, but even I can tell you that, like, you know, Steve Jocks, the drummer who sings on this song, is not Bruce Dickinson. His voice is not good. And I think this would have been way funnier if, like, Derek, whatever, the thing, the actual singer of the band, tried to do a Dickinson voice. Oh, it would have been a failure. That kid is all nose. There would have been worse, but funnier. To be fair, Steve Jocks has a... It's not, you know, you're not laughing at him on this song. Like, it's fine. Like, his voice is fine for metal. It's just like, this is not, you know. If there is one thing that I that Iron Maiden has that is very good, is that, like, Bruce Dickinson is fucking great. He's a fucking great vocalist. He was on, like, a couple of Arian records, and it was awesome. Like, he's good. Like, I don't like a lot of their songwriting, but their singer is fucking great. And when you're, when you're doing a... Iron Maiden parody is very visible that you don't have Bruce Dickinson at voice. That said, this is 1 minute 30, 1 minute 50. It's not offensive, it's like a fun diversion. I would not call it the best song of the record for my taste, but, you know, it's there. It's funny. It definitely sounds like um, something that uh, a bunch of uh, teenagers would make for fun. But it doesn't sound bad, and it is fun in an enjoyable way, so, you know? We joked about how this record definitely has some filler, and Island Records actually did a re-release EP of this that cuts it down to seven tracks. Huh. Yeah. What are the tracks? Nothing on my back, fat lip, rhythms, motivation, in too deep, handle this, and pain for pleasure. Uh... Like, Handle This is horrible, Motivation is horrible, but I guess it was a single. Rhythms was not that good. Yeah, I I, I would have had a di- different selection of these tracks. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that it cuts some of... I think some of those little jam tracks are actually better than a few of these myself. But yeah, it is just incredibly funny to me that there is an album named All Killer No Filler that they literally made a tighter version of. Nevertheless, in my dress for the occasion, it's number 32, not the other situation. With the P, moves your feet, they don't change the station. Well, I'm a disaster. I'm like a bull master. Put on the tape and rock and get a blaster. Stand up at the money, cause it tells the resorts about sweating all the is in the bike I shorts. That brings us to the close with, um, yeah, we'll, we'll be seeing some 41 sooner than later, but gasp. Yeah. I don't have any, I, I didn't do any notes for what happens after this, because we said that the record was, the record was a fair success and they got big, but also like I had a headache after heart attack. <laughs> I genuinely had an headache after heart attack. So I was like, I'm don't gonna do that work. This is what you get. But we can still do final thoughts on this record. I thought that this album was... I mean, 
it wasn't terrible. It wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. There were a couple songs that were like, oh yeah, and there were a couple songs that were like, so you know. That's my description. It wasn't terrible. As a whole, it's a pretty solid little punk jam. Individually, if we break this down, it has a lot of points of failure. But if I just put this on and wasn't writing notes, I'd probably have a pretty good time with this. Exactly. Yeah, the source of my take on it is just like, this loses a bit by going track by track, because some of these tracks are, you know, filler. But the singles are great. Like, well, two of the three singles are great. There are some good tracks. They are funny and like sort of like jerks while being fairly innocuous and they're not they're not actually pieces of shit um the, although they did throw a hot dog at someone in 2004 which um which you shouldn't do that's dangerous do not throw hot dogs at people also that's waste of food i really want to know what they will sound like in three four records they're uh, uh, the fourth record is called Underclass Hero, and I think it's a concept album. And I am so looking forward to that. That is like the record that was criticized for being too dark. I'm not looking forward to any of this, I'll be honest. Oh, uh, whoa. Okay, no. I looked at their third album, which is even weirder. The album's title is named after a UN peacekeeper named Chuck Pelletier in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where Sum 41 was filming a documentary for War Child Canada. Fighting broke out, and Chuck helped the band evacuate. There is a song literally called 88, and I, I, there's yeah. a thing that pops into mind yep. when you say that number. Yep. I mean, to be fair, if anything is going to be a problematic track on that, Angels with Dirty Faces might also count. I mean, I'm less worried about being problematic, and I'm more worried about, you know, having good intention than failing. There's nothing about Sum 41 that gives me the impression that they're actually, like, people with shitty opinion. There's a lot of stuff that gives me the impression that they are... Fairly, you you know, fairly not well-equipped to talk about uh, big subjects. Reminder, they're going to be 23 when this album comes out. Yeah. This should be a thing. <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Uh, Some 41 is starting to take the title of, ooh, what's going to happen next? <laughs> Good news. Next week is going to be another one of those What Happens Next bands, because we are covering Phoenix TX's Lechuza. People, two, two people that I know swear to me that their second record is better. I will say this, none of the songs off their first album are in the soundtrack to Clockstoppers, the Jonathan Riker film. Already talked about this, Fletch. We cannot be a Clockstopper podcast. I know, but next time, Clockstoppers comes up again. And that's one of only three things on the Wikipedia page about this album, including a track list, and the album was on a magazine's chart of essential pop pump albums. That's it. That's the whole page. Well, be sure to set your clock, because next up, we are talking about Phoenix DX. Shall we go to the ending bit? We should. Same song, different chorus. It's the 
So, this was the episode. We're gonna find us at our website, which I've now been informed that no one visits, but you should visit it anyway. Getoutofthistown.com Our mail, if you want to mail us, well, we, if you go on our website, we have a nice little form when you can write us, you know, you should go to our website. Our Twitter, which is also linked on our website, so if you go there, you can even go to our Twitter, G-G-O-O-T-T podcast, where you can at us. And we are everywhere. We're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Play, we're on Amazon, we're everywhere. And you know how you know that? You know how you can check that we're on everywhere? Is it by going on our website? Yes, you go to our <laughs> website and there are all little links, very well organized. I didn't expect this comment was going to make you so upset. <laughs> and if you go into one of those really neat links on our website, you can rate and review us. Not on our website. That is the one thing that you cannot do on our website. There is not a rating system there. But you can go on iTunes from our website and review us there. There are even Spotify playlists that you can access from our website, where there is, a, you know, one that I made with a lot of good modern emo songs that I really like. There is one where we have all of the songs that we talk about in our record. Well, not all of the best songs that we talk about in this podcast, one after the other. You can put that on shuffle and have the true 2000 pop punk experience. And you can access all of this from one place. Fletch, what is that place? Gotta get out of this town's website, ggottpod, on Twitter. <laughs> Social media, baby, it's the future. That is almost right. I'll, I'll give you a pass on that. I know, you can hear me struggling to remember the name correctly as I say it. <laughs> that is not even our correct Twitter handle. Our correct Twitter handle is ggottpodcast. <laughs> I didn't expect you to throw to me. But you will expect this throw to you. Do you have anything to plug, Flesh? Yes, you can look at my website, because websites are for people, not corporations, at hellscaper.com. Do you have anything to plug, Adam? No, because I'm a corporation and I don't have a website. And you can find me as always at ACCTheMoon on Twitter. And while you might know all of us, we do not have a Patreon, but... We do, in fact, have an upcoming biography about the podcast, No Killer, All Filler, where we talk about how none of us have murdered anyone and my lips are the size of hubcaps. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Good night. <laughs> Good night. Not like I've got the time to stick around. I'll catch my flight like a pop pumpkin. Get out of this town. What's on your mind? There's no point left to keep your image down. Let's terrify. Welcome to Gotta Get Out of This Pants, a underview, <laughs> underwear review podcast. I can pull some out and really get weird with this. <laughs>